So I'm organizing because I have these questions here and as I mentioned there were a lot of really wonderful questions and so I can only get to a handful. We'll then be bringing in the other questions through the Dharma talks in weeks to come as well as I can. But thank you all, it was very inspiring to get them. And I thought maybe I'd start tonight with a story I shared here last year that I I felt was a really nice container for um, almost every question that came in. So some of you might remember this and it's it's a good one. It takes place in the north of India some years back and a Buddhist monk uh, known as a brother of mercy lived there. He was a healer and teacher who would would breathe with people and and really open their hearts in a way that allowed them to hold their sorrows. And he just basically created a space that was really accepting and allowing. And that was his gift. And people, the natural intelligence would, would wake up in that. He did it for many years, but after some decades he found he was exhausted and dispirited and he heard about a great teacher who lived hundreds of miles to the south. This was an older woman whose reputation had spread far and wide. And she was a Buddhist nun in a very deep meditation practice. And she was known for a very direct healing practice, a directive practice, which is she would strengthen people to move beyond kind of self-imposed limits by really inquiring and, and noticing and investigating and discovering what was true. So it was a very active, engaged practice. And so this uh, monk felt a great need for this kind of clarity and wisdom and he vowed to walk barefoot across the country and meet with her. And he walked halfway and one night, a week into his journey, he found a shelter in a temple where pilgrims stay and there in that temple he encountered an old nun and told her his story and how he had spent his life trying to help and really offer a healing space but became exhausted without inspiration. So sympathetic to his situation, the old nun offered to guide him to the residence of the great healer. They arrived at the edge of a bustling village and they're warmly received and it turned out that the old nun had been none other than the much-loved healer he had been seeking. So over the years she taught him how to set limits and how to empower others by allowing them to really investigate truth and discover their capacity and their wisdom. Many years later as she lay dying, the old nun beckoned the monk to her side. There's something I never told you. On that day we met, I too had lost heart. I was headed north seeking a great healer I had heard about. (laughs) Then she smiled, squeezed his hand and peacefully passed away. I always get goosebumps when I tell that story. That's why I keep telling it. (laughs) Um, There's something very, very archetypal and beautiful in it. And uh, if you kind of drill down a bit, the, the monk really is um, an expression of one of the, the essential capacities of awareness which is really space and allowing space. That true presence has an unconditionally accepting space to it. It allows everything. And so he offered that and he helped people get in touch with that vastness that really makes room for life to come and go. It's very compassionate. And then there's another wing of awareness that the nun represented which is this very engaged recognition of what's happening. It's a kind of clarity that brings to life wisdom. So an allowing space and clear contact. And these are the interdependent qualities of primordial awareness. 
recognition and allowing space. And the truth is that if our practice in meditation is to be liberating, really we're cultivating both of these qualities. And sometimes we're really shoring up one. When we have gotten hard-hearted, we might kind of soften and tenderize the heart, you know, that allowing space. And at other times when we've gotten blurry and confused, we might kind of get a lot more of that inquiry, what really is going on, that clarity. But they're absolutely interdependent. Every one of us, because I see so much in this culture how much there's a trap of thinking that what's happening to us is bad or wrong, uh, really needs to have that allowing quality. And I just want to put that out there, that um, that seems to be the stickiest trap we get into, is having some undercurrent of judgment. And I always love that story of this yoga teacher who um, said, you know, our practice is to hug ourselves. And she said, put your right arm over your left and just hug yourself. And then she said, now switch which arm's on top and hug your evil twin. <laughs> so, so in that spirit, I'm going to tell you some of the questions that came in. Let's get these in front of me here. I'll put them here. And to summarize, the questions, really, many of them had to do with relating to the shadow side, you know, to relating to diff- what I sometimes call the, the weather systems that are difficult. You know, we're fine when it's... Last week it stormed outside, right? There was light. But we didn't go through major emotional suffering because of it. But when it storms inside, we get all tied up in knots and become a bad person and think our life is going to hell in a handbasket, right? So how to work with the difficult inner weather systems. Question number one, how does one deal with anger when they have an inappropriate background, i.e. childhood experiences that didn't model appropriate behavior? I know I need to manage my anger, but habit instinct seems to get me before I can stop it. Now I could do a hand raise and say, how many, but I won't, (laughs) you know. just to say that anger and every other emotion that comes through is meant to be there. In other words, these body-minds are designed to have different emotional weather systems as part of surviving and thriving. And they all have an intelligence. Anger lets us know that in some way something important to our surviving and thriving is being threatened, okay? And that we need to respond. So. The given is we, we couldn't live and we couldn't make it without having these emotional energies. The question is, can we be alert to when they start causing suffering? And anger causes suffering when we get hooked in the story of right and wrong and we get hooked in this belief in a victimized self and a bad other. In other words, when our sense of who we are becomes contracted, and we know it, we get small. There's a small self here, a victim myself, and a bad other out there. And the reality is is that, that while anger is a natural energy, the conditioning of our culture and our family and our early experiences end up creating a reactivity that is very, very immediate, that we can feel, and the more we've been violated, the more that reactivity is there, that we immediately lock into 
something's terribly wrong, I'm a victim and that other out there is bad. The question is, given that to different degrees we all have this contracting of our sense of identity around emotions, and this time we're talking about anger, how do we begin to wake up so we can let the energy move through us, let it inform us, let it get us alert, but not have our sense of who we are locked into it, because that is the beginning of war against ourselves and others, as it turns out. So I love the um, Tibetan um, teachings on emotions because really they, first of all, acknowledge the naturalness, that these are natural energies, and then they talk about how to liberate the intelligence inside them. And we liberate the intelligence inside them by getting to know them, by getting intimate with them. And that first me- the first step of getting intimate with an emotion inside us is to absolutely forgive that it's there. Now that's like, that's a big thing. Because especially with anger, we have this cultural um, notion that it's not spiritual and it's bad. And so very quickly, not only are we angry and the other person's wrong, but underneath that we're wrong to be angry. So we have to absolutely forgive that it's happening. Some of you might remember, this is the prayer that I almost like the best. Dear God, so far today I've done all right. I haven't gossiped, been greedy, been grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. I'm very thankful for that. But in a few minutes, God, I'm going to get out of bed. <laughs> and from then on, I'm probably going to need a lot of help. So. So most of us are tracking, you know, how good we are, you know, did I, was I cranky, was I selfish, was I, you know, productive? We have these lists that we're going on. And the first step is to, when the difficult weather systems arise and we get jealous, are possessive in that way, or we get angry or we get fearful, just on some level, recognize it and allow it. And we're going to go into rain again, of course. Really forgive it. One of the ways I kind of understand it is that every one of us has been injured or hurt by a family and culture. So we all have this kind of spacesuit we've developed to get through. This kind of ways of this persona that we present. And the spacesuit includes the emotions that either are judging and angry to try to get our way, are, are withdrawing and fearful to protect ourselves, are grasping, are addictive. I and mean, that's part of the spacesuit to try to get through. It's not badness. It's our way of compensating for deep injury. Forgive it. You can't heal it until you forgive it. So the um, beginning of kind of discovering the intelligent energy is to forgive and to then start investigating what's really happening and discovering, and I often say this here, you can, if you're ever suffering then you're angry, just might ask, what am I believing? Ask that question. There's usually some belief that um, you're going to be rejected, that you're bad, that you're wrong, that nobody loves you, that you can't trust anyone. And then feel the belief in your body. 
It doesn't help to just say, what am I believing, if you don't feel the energy in your body. It becomes a mental abstraction. But if you sense, oh, I'm believing that this person doesn't love me, okay? And then you feel the unlovableness in your body. That's the beginning of untangling the difficult weather system. Investigate. The second thing to say, so the first thing is forgive it, you know, start getting intimate with it. The second thing is really get wise to the story. Because what happens with anger, for anyone that gets trapped in anger, is even when we start feeling it and getting in touch with it, we immediately beeline right back into the story. It is just running through again before we even notice it. So the practice that really begins to liberate us with anger, and you have to be really dedicated because it's so seductive to keep rerunning the story, is to go, okay, this is the angry story, and put a frame around it, and then be willing to feel again in your body the energy just as it's arising. So you might for a moment, we'll just check in, I like trying things out while we're here. The basic elements again, see what's happening, can you just allow it? And then really offer presence, an intimate presence underneath the storyline, underneath the storyline. So in this pause you might sense if there's anywhere that you're carrying resentment right now towards someone. And if there's not, don't worry about the exercise. You can just use the time to relax and be present in your body. But if some of us here have a place where the difficult weather system is anger that just jumps out, resentment, the first step is to notice the situation go to where in your mind in that story you get angry. Notice what's happening to get you angry, resentful. And for the sake of this, this, this exercise, you might exaggerate it. and sense the irritation, the resentment, the anger. And you might just forgive that it's there. I actually, when I get angry, sometimes whisper forgiven, forgiven, just to really not get caught in thinking this is bad to be angry. Don't buy into that. So just sensing that it's there. And just let yourself begin to investigate you might sense what you're believing in this situation that's, that's kind of generating the anger. Usually it's that you're going to get hurt, that there's something bad and painful that's going to happen, some loss.
And you might sense how that feels in your body. Just the angry place, the vulnerability underneath. So that you really drop under the storyline of right and wrong, good and bad. And just feel the energy. And sense what that energy needs right now from you. It might simply need to be acknowledged, accepted, cared about. Notice if the mind goes back into the story. And if it does, if you can gently just acknowledge the story and come back just to feeling what it's like in the body, in the heart, the throat, the belly. And offering a really kind, respectful presence. So while anger is much like all the other weather systems, a key is not to get seduced back into the story, but forgive that it's all here and then feel the energy directly, breathe with it, offer it presence. There was a question that went like this, can we take the ego with us? Can we not enlighten it as well as all the other parts of us? Is not the nature of all things inherently divine? Must the ego be left behind like an abandoned child? And I just want to say, and I love that question because um, so often spirituality is described as kind of climbing a ladder to perfection and we're leaving everything behind and going to some, you know, glittery shiny, bright, clean, clear place that's unencumbered by our humanness. And really what is uh, the most beautiful description of mature spirituality is that that instead of climbing a ladder, we're really turning around to embrace this life in all its messiness and its sorrow and its beauty and its mystery. And so it's not that the ego gets left behind. In fact, if you say, well, what is the ego? I mean, really, the ego is the spacesuit that I talked about. It's all the ways we're trying to navigate. And we need, our navigate, we need our instruments of navigation. The suffering is when we get identified with the spacesuit and forget the who we are. We forget the presence and the heart, the awareness that's our, our essence. So no, we don't leave the ego behind as much as see clearly the patterns, the stories, the grasping. And in the seeing clearly, actually, it frees up the intelligence of those energies to serve us so that we're not identified with where the ocean and these waves are part of us. Now the next question that I want to share with you Let's see. Ah, how do you deal with sleepiness and conversely a sense of fear and lightness at the throat 
while meditating. In other words, when all the different experiences come through, whether it's sleepiness or restlessness or fear, what then? And especially while you're sitting here, you know, and here you hear the, you know, open to what's happening, let yourself be a field of sensation, listen to sound, and then all of a sudden you find that you're really, really sleepy. What then? And so I wanted to speak a bit about how the first tendency we have when we're meditating, we have, each of us has in our mind a prototype of this is a good meditation, it's like this. We have it, all of us, and it's always pleasant sensations and probably a very, very quiet mind and peacefulness and open-heartedness and all the, you know, a particular weather, this kind of set of weather systems. And so when it's anything, when it's one of the hindrances like sleepiness or restlessness or wanting mind, we think, oh, it's not supposed to be like this. And even when we practice RAIN, which is starts with recognize and allow, and we say, okay, I'll let this be, I'll be with this, there's a bit of bargaining mind in it because we're saying, I'll be with this so that it will go away. <laughs> Notice. And it's really natural because we don't want to hang out with fear, our sleepiness, our restlessness. We want to feel good. So one of the most powerful stages in waking up in our practice is to notice how we're trying to control and manage our experience. I mean, what would happen if you sat and you really weren't controlling anything? But it doesn't go like that. So a little story, some of you, again, this I remember telling, sharing this here a while back. Colorado, State Department of Fish and Wildlife is asking hikers, hunters, fishers, and so on, to take extra precautions and keep alert for bears while in the Dillon, Beckenrich areas. They advise people to wear noise-producing devices, such as little bells on their clothing, to alert but not startle the bears unexpectedly. They also advise carrying a pepper spray in case of an encounter with a bear. It's also a good idea to watch for fresh signs of bear activity. People should recognize the difference between black bear and grizzly bear droppings. Black bear droppings are smaller and contain berries and possibly squirrel fur. Grizzly bear droppings have little bells in them and spell like pepper spray. (laughs) So the truth is we can control a certain amount, but as you know... (laughs) And in reality, we can't control the weather systems that come up. All that we have choice on is how we're relating. So if there's anything you leave tonight with is that the weather systems will come and go. The real awakening comes in that question of how am I relating to this? So as with anger, am I and some have some undercurrent of this shouldn't be here? Or with sleepiness or restlessness, am I trying to control the dials to make it different? One of the best descriptions of really how we can relate to whatever phenomena is arising. Um, I found in a story about George Shaler, who was a primate biologist, and he's the one that the um, Gorillas in the Mitts movie was written about. And um, he became famous because he, when his colleagues learned remarkable detail about the tribal structure and the family life and intimate habits of gorillas, he attributed it to one simple thing. He didn't carry a gun. That's how he learned about primates. He was the first of the 
explorers and observers that didn't carry a gun. Previous generations, as it's written, of observers had entered the territory of these large wild gorillas with the assumption that they were fearsome and dangerous. So they came with an aggressive protective spirit, large rifles in hand. It appears the gorillas could sense the danger and fear from these rifle-toting men and kept a far distance. By contrast, George Shaler entered their territory without a weapon. He had to move slowly, gently, and above all respectfully toward these amazing creatures. And in time, sensing his benevolence, they allowed him and later his student, Diane Fossey, who was in the movie, to sit right among them and learn their ways. So I like this because I think this story captures the spirit of mindfulness, of this non-judging, respectful listening that we can bring, whether it's anger or fear or sleepiness, um, whatever's arising to, to the moment. Now, the basic response when you hit difficult weather and you're meditating is to recognize what's happening, this is the nun, and the monk to allow it, okay? In the allowing, of course, is the forgiving and the recognizing, you start to investigate what's really happening under the story. How does it feel? Having said that, there are certain skillful means that are useful if you find that you're sleepy in a meditation. And I'm just going to name a few. Open your eyes if your eyes are closed. I find if my eyes are closed, I don't have a chance in hell, you know, it's just like I'm out. But if I open my eyes, sit up a little taller, by the way, that's a good one, sit up a little taller, that can help. You can stand up, do standing meditation. I know uh, one description of it, in one Asian monastery, one monk described how he was having a, a season of sleepiness. In fact, for him, it was going on for several months. You know, because we have waves and cycles of what happens. And so his um, teacher had him sit on the edge of a well with his back to the well, this empty well, and like that, you know. He <laughs> so we don't have to do that, but there's still a sense that we can um, straighten our posture, sit up tall, breathe deep, you know, use those kind of things to wake ourselves up. But more, as with the gorillas, observe it without judgment. What does it actually feel like to be sleepy? Is there a heaviness in the eyes? Is there a weightiness at the chest? Similarly, with whatever other weather system comes in, we investigate. Now I want to um, read another question. Could you please discuss the Buddha's middle way and how it can be applied practically and developed in our lives today? In a sense, this description of recognizing and allowing is the essence of the middle way. That we're not grasping or resisting, that's the allowing. We're not controlling. And yet, with the middle way, there's an actively engaged presence. And we're talking right now about sitting meditation and how we are with our inner life, but it's the same thing with the world that there's a quality in the heart that really allows and forgives the life, all that's arising in the world, and yet there's an engaged presence and one that can then respond with intelligence and compassion when our heart senses in its stillness and in its wakefulness that something needs attention. The guide 
to the middle way. And if you're trying to figure out, well, how do I make decisions? How do I know what's the middle way? The guide is intention. If you are in a situation where you're not trusting something, if you feel you're immoderate, if you're not sure which way to go, just the sense, just asking yourself the question, really, what is my intention here? What is my intention? Is there sincerity? will naturally align you to behave in a way without grasping and without aversion. I'm going to bring in another question, if I can... Okay, so this one... This is a person that describes a whole lot of loss, major loss, a loss of a key relationship, loss of a job, and uh, just... Uh, He said, I want to feel safe, or she, I can't even tell. I want to feel safe in life, love, and work. The teaching that security is an illusion is not one I'm fully ready to embrace. I understand change is the only constant. I love some change. Embrace much change I didn't want or expect, but still don't understand how to welcome change that can take away what we most love and what we thought we could count on in this ever-changing world. It's an important question. I mean, it's really, if, if we had to say what's the core question or core inquiry is how do we embrace or make peace with a world that take, where we lose everything we love? Or it seems that way. So uh, this really is at the, the heart of the, the path and one of the weather systems that is a response to this is grief. And what I've experienced is that when um, I'm suffering and I don't let myself open to the grief that's there, there's no way to come home to wholeness and love. That grief is the gateway, that we have to allow ourselves to mourn. There's a Lakota Sioux tradition, and in it they say a person who's grieving is considered most walkin', most holy. There's a sense that when someone is struck by the sudden lightning of loss, an openness to that which is beyond this world can occur. This state of holiness is respected. Grieving people's prayers are considered especially strong. It's proper to ask them for help. So how do we begin to practice with grief? And I ask you that question because in a way we avoid any difficult emotion and we'd rather depress our experience or repress our experience or suppress our experience than open to that raw sense of losing what we love. So we all have our strategies to not go to that place, that kind of existential place of sensing that it's the the ocean of grief, you know. So we do a lot not to be there. And so the way to practice, the most direct way if you want to begin to like unlayer to where that lives is to keep coming into the body from the story. And if you can sustain your attention, if, if you're upset and you keep coming back to the body and bring your hand to your heart and offer a kind presence, that place in you, that vulnerability will present itself. I think of grief 
often like a shy creature that hides in the, like the woods and it doesn't come out into the light of the fields and it just takes refuge in the woods because it doesn't feel welcome. And when we're willing to stay in our body and our heart and just say, what's happening? What's true? And I put my hand on my heart on purpose because we're not used to relating to our inner life with an invitation. We're not used to pausing and as, as a dear friend might that's intimate say, well, what's really happening? And you know how if somebody asks you and they really care when they're asking you how all of a sudden the tears are there? Have you noticed that? We can offer that invitation inward. We can pause and know we're upset, know things are really difficult and sit there and say, okay, I'm offering presence, I care about this. I had that experience um, recently, I've been having a lot of problems with my neck and it turns out I have, as many people do, you know, the kind of deteriorating joints and discs and, you know, it's just a mess in there. And, um, and I, but it, it's severe enough that I've had a lot of headaches and the more intense it is, the more turning inward I get and it feels very selfish, like, I, like there's not much space for listening or attending to things around me. I don't have that availability. It's like I'm very occupied with being with, you know, kind of making it through, so to speak. And then what happens, to add to the unpleasantness, is that there's this judgment about bad personhood. Like not only am I feeling sick but I'm a bad person because I'm not staying so spacious and open and balanced and equanimous in it. I'm just kind of grumpy, you know. So that kind of built up over the last um, weeks. I just started noticing that I was just in this grimmer and grimmer space. I'd, I'd walk by a mirror and catch it. I could just, you know, you could just feel the... So I did what I'm talking about with you, with you, this rain, where I just started recognizing, okay, grim, annoyed, cranky, depressed, and then depressed day, depressed, depressed. So I said, okay, let it be there. It's not, it's not bad, it's not wrong. And so I just started sitting and breathing with depressed and I just asked that question. I say here so much is really, what is really happening? What wants attention? And as soon as I invited what wants attention, I got this sense of, oh, um, a shame, down on myself, and then underneath that, huge grief. And the grief was losing life, you know, and when we get stuck in being sick, there's a sense of the loss of life. So just breathing with losing life and grieving. Read you um, one of my favorite descriptions of the power of allowing ourselves to grieve what there is to grieve. And it's called the well of grief. Those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief, turning downward through its black water to the place we cannot breathe, will never know the source from which we drink, the secret water, cold and clear, nor find in the darkness glimmering the small round coins thrown by those who wished for something else. Nor find in the darkness glimmering the small round coins thrown by those who wished for something else. So whether it's anger or sleepiness or fear 
our grief, our tendency is, our conditioning is to get into a kind of reaction and want it to either control it or ignore it or push it away. The most active reaction is to, te- is to rev up our storytelling. That person's wrong because, or I shouldn't feel this because. The path of freedom that we're talking about is rather than having that gun that says, I'm wrong or you're wrong, is to offer an amazingly kind and open presence. To be like that monk who absolutely allowed, without any, any edge, whatever was arising. And like that nun who had the courage to really investigate, to invite, to invite out of the woods, out of those shy creatures, invite the grief and the fear. And then that kindness that says, I'm sorry about this suffering, I care about this suffering. So just again to pause and let's just check in. And it doesn't, it, these check-ins aren't requiring you to have something difficult as much as just getting intimate with what's here. In this pause, let your senses be awake and just arrive right here. And gently sense if there's anything going on right here in this moment or this day that's asking for your attention, any difficult weather that you might be reacting to. And just sense what might be coming up. Allow yourself to feel in your body what's, where the energy is, the emotion, the difficulty is felt. And like that monk, just allow it. See if you can forgive whatever is here right now. Another, another language for forgiving is just to say yes to it. Or in a cellular way, allow. As one teacher described it, you're just sending the message, it's like this right now, not trying to control anything. And you can deepen the presence by inviting whatever wants to be felt to be felt and to sense what the need might be inside there. Maybe there's a need for feeling more loved, more safety, more aliveness, more attention, and just to honor the need that's here. Like the well of grief, it can be a well of fear, a well of anger, hurt, those who will not slip beneath the still surface 
on the well of grief or whatever it is. Just turning downward through its black water to the place we cannot breathe. We'll never know the source from which we drink, the secret water, cold and clear, nor find in the darkness glimmering the small round coins thrown by those who wished for something else. To trust that whatever the weather that's arising in your life, it's a gateway to awakening and freedom. If you don't try to make it go away or be different, but rather if you offer a very pure presence, a very kind presence, you can notice that even if you just for a moment put your hand on your heart and send the message, I care, I'm here. I care about the suffering or vulnerability. Feel your intention to offer presence. That there's an awakening from that spacesuit self, the defended self, and you become more of the presence, the compassion. So the last question that we'll be getting to tonight, I had about four more, but it's not going to work, so... We've been exploring the inner weather system and I want to um, bring in a question that has to do with the shadow. We're talking about kind of the inner inner shadow. What about the outer shadow? So I'm going to read you some of this question and respond to some of it. How does Buddhism actualize its values of compassion and loving-kindness by encouraging people as individuals to focus internally on their breathing or other things they can control or at least be conscious of, if one believes, as I do, that most of the determinants of social conflicts and their consequences in society are embedded in the structure of power and the systems in which we are naturally and often unintentionally participate. Isn't there a danger that concepts like the inevitability of suffering will lead people to think that they cannot change things individually or collectively? Are countries where Buddhism is more prevalent actually more peaceful and citizens more likely to participate in collective decision-making to ensure that their governments act in the interests of their people? Well, Burma is Buddhist and and there's a lot of Buddhism in China, Uh, let's see, Vietnam. So I'd say I don't know the answer to that, but I don't see it. Sri Lanka's a mess. So... I don't think so. But I think there's a more important question here, which is that what is the relationship between this inner work, which is not trying to control what's there, but actually learning to respond to what's inside us with a tremendously allowing and clear presence, seeing what's happening and holding it with compassion. And how do those qualities then affect our activities in the world? And I'd say that, first of all, I truly trust that if everyone in the world in some way trained to begin to be more awake to what was going on inside them, the layers of fear and hurt 
and meet that with a wisdom and compassion that there would be a natural widening of the circles and people would not be able to violate each other. Because what happens is when we stop violating ourselves but instead listen and get tender towards ourselves, that tenderness includes other people. So what we see in the culture is the exact opposite. We see this pattern of fear and attempting to, out of that fear, control other people. And it's, it's a militancy. We see it in the penal system. You know, I think that, that you can almost say how civilized is a country by the kind of penal system it has and we're in really bad shape here in this country. You know what Gandhi said when he was asked what he thought of Western civilization. It would be a good idea. <laughs> so we see it in our penal systems. We see it obviously in the cycles of violence and make in war making. We see it in what's happening in our relationship to the environment. And we also sense that there is some kind of collective waking up going on. We don't know how collective and how fast. So the question is, what interrupts the cycles? of reactivity, in the same way that internally we can be angry and keep on believing our story and acting out of that and we can interrupt it by saying, oh, okay, let's go under the story, let's feel the feelings, let's offer presence to the hurt place inside. That breaks the cycle of reactivity. How does it happen in the world, though? And one of the things that that I more and more like the language of is that in our world we have a sense of unreal others. And most of us, unless we're really, really awake, there's a sense of the other that we read about as not being a real subjective being. We don't have a sense of the one that's looking out through those eyes, our feeling with that heart. And so how do unreal others become real to us? Because we don't violate realness. If we feel a connection, we don't violate but we'll violate if it's an unreal other. It's, it's okay, we can somehow rather bear it to have, you know, bombers across the world dropping bombs if we don't really see and feel and get it. We might not like it, we might morally or ethically be outraged, but our hearts don't get really squeezed and pained until it's a real other. What allows somebody to become real? How do the, these hundred orphans become real? And what would really make them real? If we could see close up, if we could really see close up the humanness, the sorrow, what it feels like to be an orphan and lose your parents and lose your home, if we could see it close up, there wouldn't be one of us in this room that wouldn't both be heartbroken and respond with an enormous generosity. We are innately caring and giving when we recognize what's happening. So the training begins with recognize what's happening in your own heart. Because if you can't get still enough to really get your own vulnerability and authentically feel care, you won't be able to begin to bridge the gap and sense the unreal other really as this is a child that's just had their life devastated, that has no ground to stand on. I think the practice that helps is, is really that people learn to talk to people that aren't like them so much to find out that there are differences and under that there's, that the one that's looking at us experiences the same fear and the same yearning and the same 
deep, deep longing to love and be loved. Maybe um, a story and then I will close. This is an example of that to me where the bridging of the gap of unreal other. I heard about it, it took place in San Quentin prison, some of the Spirit Rock teachers were involved with this process where uh, the San Quentin gospel choir was going to sing and in response the uh, Tibetan monks that were famous for their deep multi-vocal chanting were going to perform and they were going to go back and forth. And some of you might remember this, it's a really incredible story. So the members of the San Quentin Gospel Choir were all African Americans, many of them large men who had worked out with weights. Their years in prison they had been born again and touched by the Spirit of Jesus. And their songs were testimonials to their depths of suffering and to the light of the Gospel that had been awakened in them. The organizers of this back forth feared that the Tibetan monks would appear to be merely foreigners and heathens to these newly awakened Christians. When the heathen monks arrived, the contrast was even more apparent. Dwarfed by the African Americans was a group of small Asian men wearing maroon skirts. The question was how to bridge the gap. So here you have a potential unreal other situation. And the sponsor of the event did an inspired introduction. Here's what he said. Almost all of these Tibetan men who have joined us today have spent years in harsh prisons. The Communist Chinese army was not, not only imprisoned them for expressing their beliefs, but tortured them as well. Somehow they were released or able to escape from prison. Then to find freedom, they walked across the Himalayas, the highest mountains on earth. Some tied rags on their feet because they had no good shoes, but even now they are in exile. They are forced to live far from their homes, apart from their families and community, and they do not know if they will ever be able to return. What has kept them going through all of their struggles have been their songs and prayers. This is what they will sing for you today. In an instant, the gospel choir and the Tibetan monks looked at one another with eyes that shared the vulnerable depths of human sorrow and they found understanding. Each group sang to the other from the heart and when their music was finished, they came together to hug and embrace like long-lost brothers. So the songs these men sang expressed the emotions of their hearts, their struggles, their capacity to endure. And in a way, when I sense, well, what really allows us to bridge the gap? How can we really know that we're connected and belong to each other so that our behaviors start being on the behalf of all of us, including the animals that are going extinct in Mother Earth? The way that it happens is that we learn to share what's true and to listen to each other and to all others. That we really begin to inquire, what is it like to be that being? Whether they're here or in Iraq or Burma or wherever. There are trainings out there now. This isn't just a, an idea. There's more and more trainings in nonviolent communication and in practices of really stepping out of the trance of our separate selves and really being able to look at others and sense that the one that I'm looking at, that same vulnerability I feel, this person feels. And also to look at each other, and this is really important, and see that that same radiance, that same awakeness and tenderness of heart that we sometimes feel in our own being, that is the essence of this other. 
That's the possibility of this practice. We close right now, just invite you to close your eyes. That the essence of our practice, as I describe with the monk, is to really have that quality of presence that allows what's here, that really offers a listening, open, profoundly receptive space. So just feel that you can listen and receive the life that's here. And like the nun, that that listening and that presence is engaged, it's interested. And it's from this presence that when we encounter our world, when we're open, clear, engaged, that we can respond and be part of the healing. The poet Gary Lawless writes, When the animals come to us asking for our help, will we know what they are saying? When the plants speak to us in their delicate, beautiful language, will we be able to answer them? When the planet herself sings to us in our dreams, will we be able to wake ourselves and act? This is no different than listening inwardly to the longings and fears and responding with a wise and kind heart. Reverence for life starts right here in this moment and naturally embraces all beings. To close, just feeling our shared intention to love this life and serve this life. To allow and forgive what's difficult to investigate and open to what's real. May all beings everywhere be filled with loving presence, held in loving presence. May all beings everywhere be free. Namaste. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.